Unlike other industries that are largely driven by the public sector, the space tech industry is increasingly fronted by private entities. On top of the regional collaborations, the funding by these private entities have accelerated space tech advancements in cities like Singapore. One example is the development of nanosatellites where information such as the geospatial data and imageries can be retrieved efficiently at low cost, allowing for ecosystem players to better facilitate mobility through space. Today, we discuss space technology and its role in elevating mobility on Earth. Hi everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to the second season of our Future Mobility series, bringing you the top voices from the sector. Decision makers, innovators and shapers pushing the envelope on future ideas for transportation and beyond. I'm your host Deshraf and today we're joined by Nikolai Klistov, Lead Shaping the Future of Mobility and Space at the World Economic Forum and Lynette Tan, Chief Executive at Singapore Space and Technology Limited. Nikolai and Lynette, welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be here. Nikolai, I'd like to start off with you. As the lead shaping the future of mobility and space at the World Economic Forum, what is your organization's vision for the global space stack as well as your role in it? Yes, of course. Thanks, Dishok, and delighted to be here. Well, the World Economic Forum is a neutral platform, um, and we look at some of the biggest global challenges that really require collaboration of different stakeholders. And really, to address some of these biggest global challenges, you need all these stakeholders working together. Now, technology is supposed to improve our lives, right? I think most would agree with that. We at the Forum are not working on developing, perhaps, the actual technologies, but rather more broadly thinking through the rules, frameworks, of how this technology could be integrated in the best possible way for us all, for humanity, right? And also how to apply it in the best way. So for space technology specifically, I would say it could be a question of promoting, you know, the benefits that come from connectivity, for example, you know, so satellite connectivity, or global positioning, or Earth observation. Also, you know, maybe it could be a question of creating tools to promote sustainability in orbit and beyond, right? Because we need to protect those orbits. Maybe helping the sector move forward, uh, on difficult question that it's facing through forward-thinking action and progressive steps. So, you know, when you're talking about sustainability, when you're talking about the rules of the road, so working through scenarios, toolkits, guidelines. So that would be what, you know, I would say we really focus on and try to address. And Lynette, moving to you. The Singapore Space and Technology Limited, also known as SSTL, serves as an advocate and thought leader in the industry, with a focus on developing space tech capabilities within the Southeast Asia region. So, as the Chief Executive at SSTL, what are some initiatives that have been introduced for regional stakeholders in the space industry to convene and drive the development of space tech? Well, we, we don't run the World Economic Forum or events of that scale. Uh, there are you know, good established platforms for that. But we do organize Asia's largest English-speaking space tech conference out of Singapore, a country within Southeast Asia, and interestingly, does not yet have a space agency. But again, with similar principles as what Nikolai have expressed, it's a neutral platform. It's for thought leaders, technology leaders to come to talk about the ideas, 
the regulations, the adoption, and of course, you know, we try to also stimulate a frontier knowledge sharing at the Global Space and Technology Convention. Of course, uh, talking about events in 2020 and 2021, you know, if this goes down in history, these are COVID years, right? It's very interesting, but we're going to push on like a World Economic Forum. We will be having our conference this year, and we want to keep that momentum for the dialogue and conversations to continue. In Asia Pacific, there is also the Asia Pacific Regional Space Agency Forum hosted by JAXA. So that's an annual regional meeting with the government stakeholders. Uh, they talk about disaster management and environmental protection. So in this part of the world, geographically, well, now with Zoom, it, it, we open up all time zones. These are some key platforms for people to convene now virtually and drive the development, adoption and good practices uh, of these technologies. Hey, that's great, Lynette. And now, before we jump and deep dive into the discussion around space technology, for our listeners who are not familiar, how are space technology built different from typical technologies that we see today? And can you walk us through what makes up space tech? Nikolai, maybe we'll start off with you on that. Well, I'll do my best. And I'm not an engineer, so really not an expert on the actual hands-on technologies. But what I can say probably is that space tech has an interesting relationship, right, between space technology and sort of terrestrial technology. I mean, it's all built on Earth, right? It's all designed by people on Earth, right? But space tech has benefited tremendously from other sectors, right, on Earth over the past decades, especially when you think about all the investment that went into the space programs in the 50s, but certainly 60s, 70s, and 80s. You need to design materials, sensors, solar panels, uh, different types of chemicals and, and compounds and you know and other elements that have to survive in extremely cold environments for useful purposes really in a vacuum. So the pressure issues, they have to be exposed to high Gs, all right? So particularly during launch, that's really when the highest Gs are there. So you have to really think of that. And also the fact that you need to design things as light as possible, right? Because the launch costs have traditionally been very high. They're coming down now, but also strong and compact for reasons, again, of launch. But also specific problems the other way around needed to be solved for human spaceflight, for example. So these solutions then became extremely valuable on Earth. So different medical applications, different materials, water purification, etc. Now, more recently, space tech has in turn benefited from the, some of the technologies that were developed and improved perhaps there, but were really pushed forward in the terrestrial sector, particularly in the consumer and technology sectors, right in the end of 90s and, and early 2000s. So really miniaturization of tech has played a huge role in the recent boom of private enterprise. So, you know, making satellites smaller, uh, which then makes them cheaper to launch. Elinette, what about you? I was trained, you know, as a chemical engineer, not spacecraft or space engineering. I think this is a really good question because many times people talk about space tech and they think of rockets. So rocket is one part of the space technology, similar to vehicles. You know, you, you have the, the car, but then you have the engine and then you have the services that the car provides. And then you have the tires uh, and then you have the things inside the car. So cargo. So in a way, there are underlying fundamental technologies. Then what makes up space tech is astronautics. So let's go very far out. What we send out deep into space to understand the universe. And then let's go a bit closer. What we send into space, uh, into the International Space Station, you know, provide services back onto Earth. So they, they could be satellites, 
providing us with communications. And then there are software and other developments within the satellites and spacecraft uh, that we also understand on Earth, such as in-situ processing or you know, artificial intelligence. Uh, then certainly there's a whole field of material science for the reasons that Nikolai has stated in that you're operating in some of these uh, out-of-the-world mission in a very dangerous environment. You have solar flares. You're not protected from the radiation. You have extreme temperature you know, cycles. So material science becomes very important. Earth is, is super benign. It's very comfortable. But when you shoot the rocket and the spacecraft out into this protective environment, it needs to be able to withstand that. And then there's a whole complexity with zero gravity. So that's when space tech starts to be super cool and awesome and also very, very challenging. And even then, you will see new technologies coming in. You know how there's quantum or there's cybersecurity, there's big data analytics. Uh, These are all technologies that are also used in the space industry, but, you know, in a different way. And expanding on the developments in space tech, Singapore, for instance, has launched 13 small satellites since 2011 and aims to become a leading space tech hub in Southeast Asia. So, Lynette, I wanted to ask you, what are some motivations behind the establishment of a task force to develop space technology in Singapore? There are various uh, organizations and entities looking into various aspects. Where SSTL gets very involved in is in innovation and talent development. And that's exactly what you have mentioned. So we want people to consider Singapore as a place where they could test out and incubate their ideas. Because also space touches certain sensitivity in terms of access to the air and to space. So having an entity that tends to be good neighbours uh, is it, also important. Uh, SSTL also organised the Space Accelerator Programme, where we welcome uh, any startups to come and join us. And it's really interesting now because of COVID, we have people from all over the world to really look into how to develop uh, Singapore as a hub to spark off uh, global solutions to solve problems using space technologies. Now, we're very realistic because it can't just be about space technology. Uh, You need to augment it with very good earth technologies to make it uh, sustainable and commercially viable. So I think you know, we're scoping out certain of these objectives, but various task force uh, have various uh, agenda. One of them is likely on regulations. When you launch something into space, you know, it's, it's like the wild, wild west. No one really owns it. You don't have police patrolling and uh, no one's going to catch you in a way. And it's not easy to do that. So that kind of regulation uh, task force is, is going to have a very important job. Uh, So then there will be innovation. How do you progress and promote innovation out of a small country like Singapore? And I think where we also get very active with the various stakeholders is in talent development, you know, really enabling and emboldening people to reach for the stars and to ensure there is a sustainable job for them, you know, whether in Singapore or in various parts of the world. And Nikolai, coming back to some of the points you mentioned earlier, We understand that there are currently 16 public and private space agencies across the world. So with that said, in your opinion, what type of regulations can be introduced to ensure more successful implementations of SpaceX? Well, Dishraf, that's that's probably one of the one of the trickiest questions. Personally, I think it's not really a question of technology for the space sector. Really, the big question is how do we actually get 
all the different uh, countries aligned about some of the sort of rules of the road, right? How do we do this? How do we successfully go beyond permanently beyond the Earth orbits, right? Or frankly, beyond the lower Earth orbit, right? Which is where the International Space Station is. It's very close to us, right? It's flying at 400 kilometers and people have been there for the last 20 years. How do we permanently go beyond that, right? Whether it's moon or, or, or beyond. You need rules, we need rules, right? Now, the number of space agencies is growing, right? It's still relatively low and, and hopefully Singapore will join that number soon. There are many more countries that are part of the UN uh, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, right? And that number is also expanding, right? So a lot of countries actually are looking to be part of this conversation, even if they cannot necessarily launch themselves, but maybe they build a satellite, right? And they want to have ability to harness some of the data through that satellite, or even use other folks' hardware, right? They want to be part of this conversation there. Absolutely correctly so. But again, the, the question on rules, right? We do need to think about rules, for example, for managing space debris, right? It's That's probably one of the biggest pressing issues right now we have in orbits. So all the debris that's been left there from the very beginning, old rocket bodies, old satellites, things that, you know, debris as in really debris after collisions that have happened. This is really a big threat for the whole sector. Um, and there's a lot of thinking going on, you know, about how to try to remove that, right? There are several uh, companies that are now thinking actively in designing missions to demonstrate removal and, and build a commercial proposition out of that. There are some rules that exist, but we need probably to tighten them, right? Really for the benefit of all. You know, the other element linked to that is probably space traffic management. As I'm sure many of the listeners would know, there are many constellations now in planning to provide global connectivity, right? And now it becomes a national element as well. Certain countries want to have their own constellation. You know, they don't want to rely on an American connectivity only, right? Now, thousands of satellites in orbit, it's not going to work over the foreseeable future. It's just each system maybe can manage itself autonomously, right, and avoid collisions. But if you start having multiple large systems in orbits, which are maybe close to each other, on top of all the things that are already there, that becomes very tricky. And you really need to think you need a global traffic management system, which currently doesn't exist. And Lynette, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, you know, I think they're all really, really good points. And coming from the innovation and engineering side, it's really a necessary balance, right? On one hand, you want innovation, creativity, people to try out. And there's the reason why these rules didn't exist. It was because these problems or uh, challenges and opportunities that comes with its challenges are brought about because of innovation. And innovation created new paradigm for the industry that then require new rules. But with new development and opportunities, because they were playing in the Wild Wild West field, that created another set uh, that were beneficial and that, you know, like how Nikolai pointed out, they can be potentially very dangerous. So that balance is difficult. And then when you start to have the necessary rules, as is sometimes required, you inevitably stifle certain types of innovation. So I want to be just upfront with the whole you know, having a circumspective approach towards this. But I feel what is tremendously important is in the soft governance, that every individual, every space actor needs to learn to be responsible. There is an acceptable realm that we operate in. You know, this is not rocket science. And I think every individual, regardless of whether there's a hard and fast rule, there's a stake at the end of it, we need to practice that kind of soft governance mechanisms That should be in every actor's DNA. And until there are established rules, and because of the nature of space, that, that can be very, very difficult. Until there are established clear rules and regulations, when there are rogue activities, the reaction of the community 
it's very important in sending the signal of how that's going to perpetuate or not. Thanks a lot, Nicola and Lynette. Now, I wanted to shift the conversation towards the real-life applications. We've talked about, you know, the use of space technology here on Earth. So, for example, you mentioned solar panels earlier. But aside from that, we wanted to hear as well, what are the real-life applications of space tech that you have witnessed? Share with us some real-life applications of space technology that you have seen benefit the future of mobility. Yeah, <laughs> The very uh, evident one is in global positioning. So using the navigation satellites to pinpoint location, uh, which will affect future of mobility if we move into an autonomous vehicle. You know, not getting the guy to read the map on the phone or in, in my days, you know, you flip a, a street directory, right? So now the machine is going to talk to something that's going to tell it where it is. And that's that ubiquitous asset that tells the position. So that, that's important. Uh, and then, you know, sensor technologies to recognize. They're not necessarily space technologies, but in space missions, you do need very precise docking, that kind of precision level, that space level precision, you know, that could have potential spin-off. But for sure, autonomous control, because space is all about remote, right? It's not about human being there. It's all about remote, remote control, remote computing. And that in the future of mobility is a lot of times people are out of driver's seat in, in most vehicles. So that kind of remote understanding systems uh, applications will be seen very prevalently in the future of mobility. I'm going to leave some for Nikolai. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, coming back to an earlier point that I mentioned was a wonderful, I think, answer actually to describe the, uh, the space technology. And this is sort of a bit of a, a cliche, maybe a statistic, but for every dollar you invest in the space sector, you know, you get approximately $4 back, right? And maybe that changes now a little bit, right? But the point is that it's actually difficult to calculate all the value that we get, right? Because there's so many spin-offs, there's so many application, new application, and new types of cases that we get back from investment in space tech, rather, whether it's a Mars lander and rover to uh, new types of satellites, right? Of course, some of those applications then maybe are purposefully made for benefit Earth, uh, as again, as Lynette was mentioning, but there's a lot of stuff that uh, we by accident discover and say, oh, wow, this is actually pretty powerful. You know, this can solve some really interesting challenges back on Earth. And of course, as we continue developing and, and growing the space sector, the possibilities are almost endless, right? You, you start thinking about all the technologies that, you know, you can, you can mix and match, you know, from robotics to 3D printing to more and more powerful AI systems uh, to new kinds of materials, right? And you start thinking maybe, you know, the ideas of actually building something and building a big spaceship on orbit almost autonomously, it doesn't sound that uh, far-fetched and that impossible. Uh, maybe it's not going to happen next year, right? But, but you know, when you start thinking a little bit one decade, two decades into the future, certainly to the middle of the century, all these technologies, you know, and then you really start accelerating and exponentially growing the things that you're doing in orbit, right? And, uh, and in space, uh, I mean, then thinking of all the applications back. Yeah. That's great. Thanks a lot, Nikolai and Lynette. Now, building on what both of you have shared, it seems that cross-sector collaborations is something that we're going to be seeing more of as we move forward with the you know, future of space technology and the future of mobility itself. So be it regional or even global partnerships. Uh, I wanted to ask the both of you, how do you envision collaborations within the space ecosystem helping to accelerate the benefits of space technology? And can you share some examples? So maybe Nikolai, from a global perspective, having worked in 
the World Economic Forum. What have you seen and how do you see this helping to enable the space technology ecosystem? Yeah, well, no, excellent question. I think these are the really exciting questions, right? You know, we can all do our own things separately, but, you know, what, what opportunities open up when you start really collaborating, right? And it's not just saying, well, this technology and, and, and this technology working together, but it's actually adding a third and fourth technologies and coming up with creative solutions. We've spoken already about some of these. So, you know, collaborations are critical, right? But it, they're difficult, right? They're not so obvious. You have different cultures, you have different expectations, you have maybe slightly different incentives. So that's, you know, that's why it doesn't happen instantaneously. But that would be maybe my quick reaction to that question. And Lynette? Ironically, so it was nice when Nikolai handed this question to me. I did think that the EU is practically one of the only and slash best case studies we have. And the ESA, right, being that Germany has its own space agency, France has its own space agency, the Italians have their own, and they come together to form the European Space Agency, which is that regional partnership established. So they have the most experience in these space tech partnerships. Uh, in Asia Pacific, there are you know big brothers who step up to do that, one of them being the Japanese, because they also have a module on board the International Space Station. Again, that is a very global partnership. Uh, and so actually what we do is to write onto the partnerships and framework that they have established, look into it to make sure that it makes sense. We don't find them very unfair. Uh, they are providing a lot of access to space for Southeast Asian companies and organizations and research institutions. They have been providing a lot of information and knowledge. I do feel that there are many different types of collaboration, right? There is that G2G kind, which is in a way that ESA model uh, that we have. Then there is the you know industry consortium business kind that we get more involved in. In that case, things are a little bit more straightforward because the common objective is to create as much return on investment for every entity. So the metric to measure is more straightforward. Um, and then there are research institutions that have, they want certain research outcomes and guidelines. And I find that they are extremely and strictly collaborative. We've seen so many Singapore payloads, you know, on the missions of uh, another program from another country and then going up together because the research objectives are very clearly defined. So these are some of the examples of partnership that we have seen you know, in, in Asia Pacific and Southeast uh, Asia. Now I'd like to move the conversation forward. Besides collaboration, sustainable growth in space technology is important to ensure long-term benefits to the future of mobility. As such, Nikolai, one of the many projects introduced by your organization is the Space Sustainability Rating concept. Could you elaborate more on this as well as share how advancements in space tech can encourage sustainability in space? Thanks, Dishraf. Well, the concept initially came out from quite a lot of work of the Global Future Council on Space. It took the group two years to sort of think through, you know, not just come up with the concept, but think through the different elements of it, uh, engage different stakeholders. So the members of the council really work hard. And, you know, that's that's when the concept was born. You know, the forum sort of said, well, you know, we can help perhaps build it. But again, it's a complex idea. And so, you know, we actually went out to different stakeholders and said, you know, who would like to work with us on this? You know, we don't necessarily have all the technical expertise of orbital dynamics and some of the different technologies which are, which are critical here. So, you know, we have a terrific collaboration 
uh, for the last year and a half, almost two years now, with MIT's uh, Space Enabled Research Group at their Media Labs, with European Space Agency, uh, their debris office, but also with University of Texas as well as Bryce Space and Technology. And it's, you know, talk about collaboration. You know, we have, you know, different types of stakeholder groups, uh, but really working together, you know, because we all believe in this concept, right? And so, you know, we're coming close to the launch of it. We're right now in the process of selecting an organization or perhaps several organizations that work together to actually manage it. We are in the final stages of beta testing the, the rating. And I'll say, of course, a few words on that. And, you know, we hope it will be launched in the, in the first half of this year. Now, the, the idea is relatively simple, right? We didn't, you know, create anything dramatically new. The concept has been, you know, we have it on Earth, right? You know, the lead certification for buildings, for green technologies, you know, the different uh, efficiency ratings for, you know, for your appliances, uh, other rating systems. So we basically are designed a concept that says, well, if you're an operator or a launch provider, how can we incentivize you with a carrot approach to really mitigate and manage any potential debris creation your mission may have? Now, I don't want to put both of you on the spot, but uh, given that both of you are experts in your field, what will be your pitch to encourage more startups and innovators to join the space industry? And how exactly do they get started? Maybe we'll start off with you, Nikolai. Well, I was hoping you wouldn't go to me first. Um, that's, that's that's a tough question, and, and I'm 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 sure Lynette will have a much better answer to this. Um, and look, I'm not a I'm not a financial advisor, and I certainly don't want to be responsible for anybody's investment decisions here. And that's that's not our role at all. But that aside, I mean, you know, the, the space sector is an exciting place right now, right? You know, the boom has been going on for the last ten years, really, in in, in private funding. Maybe you know, a few years more than that. Will it continue for the next 10 years? We certainly hope so. I think the sector is really bullish on that idea. But it's always risky, right? You cannot you cannot judge what's going to happen in the future just because the last 10 years has been wonderful, right? It's one of, I think, the basic principles of investment. And may, perhaps I'm not presenting the most sort of uh, joyous, optimistic viewpoint. I'm you know, maybe a little bit more balanced here. But, you know, many startups, as in as in any other sector, you know, don't don't survive, right? It's it's a minority that make it forward. You know, I think a year and a half ago, there was an interesting sort of statistic, you know, probably a year and a half ago, there were something like over a hundred small launch startups, right? Working on uh, developing small launch vehicles around the world. I mean, I'm not sure how many of them now are uh, still in operation or still looking to, to do something, certainly less than that number. I, we think there's a lot of opportunity. We think the space sector, you know, is certainly uh, poised to, to grow and, and really benefit rest of humanity so guys the limit as they say and Lynette what about you yeah I think I'm in the same plane with uh, Nikolai I, and I maybe that's because we, we we know a little bit about the industry so we're very realistic with what kind of advice? Uh, to be fair, you had a, a few parts to your question. What would you, you know, do to encourage more startup and innovators to join the space industry? I think that's the easy part. People are generally naturally very excited about space technology, and how do they get started? So, thankfully, I do have a solution, and that you should join our accelerator program because we we do have one, <laughs> right? And it has been very successful in one in twelve months. You know, we've helped the companies uh, raise you know five million in terms of funds or in terms of uh, you know contracts, uh, and that's because of the international <clears throat> network we have with people industry 
in the industry and with people outside of the industry. So in our mentor program, I'm not selling, you know, but you, you did ask, right? How did they get started? So we do tell them, uh, we, we do have a various profile of people not from the space industry in our mentor program. And these are the people who know how to apply your technology into, the, into various businesses. And that's very important and that's very useful. And that's why we've been, you know, fairly successful. And I also do that kind of uh, very nice, you know, prep talk with startups who join us in that, you know, startup is hard. You know, space tech is very hard. And, you know, try 99.9% fail, just to let you know. So our pitch is not really to encourage because naturally space tech attracts the best, the brightest, and the most exciting people. Challenge is to put the feet on the ground and say, sorry, you need to do this Excel sheet because you need to submit it to the investor. Sorry, the system doesn't work. You know, we did the in-orbit testing. It didn't work. Or in many cases, as many startups have told you, your launch got delayed, right? By six months. You're not going to get any money in the next six months because you can't prove your concept. And in cases that I have also witnessed, I'm sorry, the rocket blew up. Satellite's gone. <laughs> it does happen. Okay, and like two years of research, vaporized. So we do want them to have a heart of steel. We do want them to have grit. Um, but I think they go on to do very, very exciting things. And I think if you're going to be in an awesome startup, it's got to be space tech. But yeah, it can blow up. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd like to wrap up the discussion and ask the both of you something a bit more personal. Nikolai, maybe we'll start off with you first. Can you share with us a fun fact about space and where do you see space tech five years from now? That's a hard one because there, there's so <laughs> many fun facts. Maybe there are two quick points here. You know, one element that I was always amazed by when I started sort of working in space sector and then doing a little bit of sort of research in history, you know, the, the grandfather of space exploration perhaps uh, could be considered Tsiolkovsky, right? Who was a Russian philosopher, scientist, mathematician, you name it, right, who designed some of the early equations. I think he came up with the orbital velocity, right? So the speed you need to stay in orbit. But he he came up with those over 100 years ago. I mean, hundred, like literally at the turn of the 20th century. You just, just think about that. He was sitting somewhere where there was no electricity there. He just had some kind of a pencil or charcoal. I don't know what he was writing his equations with. Then it took you know, another 20, 30 years for first engines to be started and first rockets to be sort of conceived, right? For me, that was always quite astonishing. So thinking from sort of those beginnings, you know, 120, 130 years ago to um, to where we're now, where we're going to go, you know, I think it's just it's interesting to put that in perspective. I think that the, the really fun fact that sort of is in, you know, people's imaginations now and a lot we, we hear about it is the idea of search for life, right? I mean, just in the solar system, there are multiple places where we could find microbial life, right? We're not going to find aliens, Jupiter or Saturn's moons, right? But but there are places or moons on uh, around Jupiter and Saturn that could hold uh, and could have support life of, of, you know, basic microbes, perhaps. Just think about that. That's in our own solar system, right? There is, there, there is a chance, right? And so when you expand that and project that to trillions of stars that all have planets around them, it's really a fascinating thing to think about um, and, and, you know, one that sort of gives me a lot of sort of positive energy. I mean, it sometimes could be a little bit scary, one might argue, right, uh, to, to think of, you know, other intelligent civilizations 
living in across the universe, right? But I think that's really an exciting fact that drives a lot of the space space technology, which when you just think about satellites, can think, well, it's just a satellite, right? Uh, but it's actually you need the satellites, you need these rockets to get us to 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 know some of these answers and to push us uh, beyond the Earth orbit. Elinette, same question goes to you. Can you share with us a fun fact about space and where do you see SpaceX five years from now? Yeah, I'll give you a fun fact to go to a bar if you can. You know, mm-hmm. practice distancing measures, please. I mean, Nicola had a very good one. Um, I'm just going to keep something light. But I, one of the first things I learned in this industry was the, you know, in, in Singapore, we talk about the joke about how the, uh, you know, in, in the NASA spent a lot of money trying to develop a pencil to be used in space and the Russians just used a pencil. So that's not true. <laughs> okay. And I learned it the, the hard way. Um, I'll tell you why. Because the, the carbon and the, the lead flakes and that's very hazardous in space. <laughs> so using a pencil in space is, is dangerous. It's flammable. Uh, and I knew that because we were trying to send a scientific experiment on board the International Space Station and we just took an ink from our table and we wrote it and we sent it, right? And then at the, the receiving authority said, no, no, you didn't use space grade ink. It's going to be flammable. Space Station will blow up. Like, Whoa, so that's a list of things you can bring onto the space station and it's very strict. Um, I, I like to talk about it again. It's, it's Space always sounds very exciting, very romantic, but when you come down to it, it actually is a very rigorous and very down-to-earth type of industry. Um, and we they don't take things for granted there, right? So anyway, if you're going to a bar at some point, uh, you can tell that joke about the, the, the pencil, right? I, I, everyone seems quite excited to hear that. But if they're from the same space industry, they probably would know. Um, and then where do you see space tech five years from now? I, I think people are looking forward to the Artemis uh, mission. Uh, there's a lot of anticipation. I think the language of the moon, uh, going to moon, is going to be common again. I think there was a period of time we didn't go back to the moon, uh, and now we are. And I think young kids, you know, the the society community are just going to be so much more receptive. Like, oh, you know, yeah, um, I know someone who's going on a mission to the moon, a- and I think that will be part of everyday life. And it's it's actually very very exciting to know that. And, uh, you know, I also wanted to talk about the mainstream uh, suborbital flight. You know, I, I think and I hope something we might be able to achieve, you know, at least for cargo, maybe not for humans, because uh, manned missions are always more stringent in requirements and rightfully so. But maybe in cargo, in telemedicine and that, say you need an organ transplant and they are always time critical. Every, you know, hour matters. Could we do some something like that using suborbital flights, you know, save a human life? Uh, I think that's worth exploring and I would be uh, optimistic that it can happen. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank both our guests, Nikolai and Lynette, for sharing valuable insights into space technology and how it impacts mobility on Earth. In the meantime, if you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email at cpodcasts at Deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at Deloitte.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm Dishraf, and until next time. <laughs>